News of the Weird. And yes, there is a website called that. <laughs> and they told about uh, David Joe White Jr., age 32, who was in court in Alabama. And White was there because he'd been charged with 42 counts of burglary. He, he pled guilty, but while he was still in the courtroom, White was re-arrested, and I quote, swiping for swiping his lawyer's portable tape recorder from the defense table. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is true of David Joe White in a very large degree is true of all of us in general. Sad to say, even when we know full well that something we do has consequences and will have consequences, we are very prone to do it again. Yeah, in my pastoral office over the years, I've talked with many people who were feeling real anguish over this, this crazy human propensity toward repetitive sin. The guy who hooked up with someone that week before, even though he was trying so hard to break this pattern from his past. Or uh, the mom who admitted, I'm angry a lot, especially at my kids, and I take it out on them. And she was in anguish over that repetition. And as long as you and I have a functioning conscience, we will all have those moments where we, we feel this, where we go, I blew it. I don't have a good excuse. And it isn't the first time, so it's really hard to get rid of the guilt and I, it's hard to shake off the shame. And we kind of know, don't we? I'm just going to mess up again. At what point, are, and, that, and then our fears kick in, like at what point are people going to give up on me? Or what point is God going to finally wear out? You know? I don't know, maybe you're there right now, some of you. Is it, if you are, is it making you kind of hold back from God? Are you feeling like a little reluctant to try to pray? Maybe try serving something at church? I don't know. Maybe you feel like you don't deserve that much from God right now. Well, I don't, if you're not there now, you might well find yourself there in the future. So I invite you tonight to listen to a word from God through the prophet Jeremiah. I love this word. When we are feeling hopeless about our ability to change, this divine word gives us hope. When we are feeling shame, it restores our dignity. And when we're feeling distanced from God, it gives us a way back home. So let's look at it together. Well, God speaks this word at a time when his people have failed again, a very epic fail. It's the moral equivalent of flunking out of school. Now, I have learned from our daughter, who's a high school teacher, that actually it's really hard to flunk a class. You actually have to really work at it, which is, I, I did not realize that. But she says, well, first, you know, she's explained to me, they have to, you have to not show up to class, like a lot. It's like, okay, and then you have to not pay any attention when you do show up. Just put up your hoodie, put in your earbuds, vape some cannabis, whatever <laughs> you're doing. Then you have to not do any classwork or homework. 
And then you have to ignore the many times that the teacher talks with you after class and tries to get you back on track. At least that's what my daughter does. And finally, when the teacher calls your parent multiple times to go over what's happening and, and kind of see if there's any way that you might be able to help, then you have to ignore them. Well, that is actually a really good picture of the history of God and his people. God is working so hard, and they are blown off the course and end up flunking it. So just to refresh your memory here, God rescues his people, two million people, who are enslaved, from being enslaved, from being oppressed, um, out of Egypt, and in his mighty power, really dramatic miracle upon a miracle, he leads them out, and at Mount Sinai, he makes his covenant with them. So he's committing to them, and he's asking them to be committed to him. But even though then God keeps his side of the bargain, his people fail it just right and left. Moses tells them this, quote, so remember, this is not very far after they've <laughs> gotten the covenant at Mount Sinai. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Later, Elijah comes and warns them. Then Joel warns them. Then Amos says this, you trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So you were oppressed, and as soon as you're out of your oppression, you deny justice to others and oppress them. Then God sends Hosea and Isaiah and a long other string of prophets and messengers. And then finally, they get to Jeremiah, whom we've been studying, who says this, listen, I'm going to bring on this city of Jerusalem and all the villages around it every disaster that I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. And after 600 years of ignoring God's word, including 41 years of ignoring Jeremiah, God's people are finally surrounded by the dictator of Babylon and captured and forced marched off into exile. In, uh, and it is just an epic fail. And God's people are feeling, is God done with us? The temple's gone. Our country's gone. We're a small remnant left. But is there any hope for people like us who have blown it and are going to do it again? And it's at that moment that Jeremiah, who is able to bring words of judgment, we've all been hearing those for the last few weeks, brings them a word from God that they could not have expected. To help us hear it, I'm going to try to break it into three phrases for you. The first phrase is, uh, comes from Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 3. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people, Israel and Judah, back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors pos to possess. Did you hear that? God's like, I will bring back. I will restore. I haven't forgotten my promise. I said that was your land, and I'm bringing you back. God's people have utterly failed, but to people exactly like that and to us, God says, your failure is not final. And that's, that's my first phrase. God is telling his people here, your failure is not final. When God gets done, the end is not judgment. The end is restoration. He only brings judgment for the ultimate purpose of greater restoration. Chapter 31 and verse 10, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those 
stronger than they. Now, Jeremiah is speaking here to people who've been kidnapped by Babylon, which is by far the most powerful military in the world. And, but God keeps this word. He raises up Cyrus, the Persian, who conquers those people who've kidnapped the Jews. He frees the captured Jews to return back home, and 42,000 of them do this. So I wonder how this word sounds to you tonight. The Lord will deliver, let's put your name in there, and redeem you from the hand of those stronger than you are. Is your habitual sin stronger than you are? God can rescue you from that. And he brings people back. He loves to restore. In verse 12, here's his great promise for all those that he brings back. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. There will be grain, new wine, olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They'll be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. God is promising his people who have so utterly failed him abundance and dancing and singing and food and banquets and joy. It's like to the people who've totally blown it, he throws a huge like wedding reception level party for them. That's what he loves to do. I wonder if you just need to know tonight, your failure is not final. Where there's been judgment, God loves to restore and bring joy. He says, I will bring you back. That's his first promise to his people who fail him. Your failure is not final. Well, what's the second? God must know that his people are feeling, well, that's great and all, but it's only a matter of time till we blow it again. I mean, God, you can save us from the Babylonians, which is a miracle that that all happens, but can you save us from us, (laughs) ourselves? So God says these amazing words, Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, a passage that is quoted probably more in the New Testament than any other from Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, lead them out of, led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. God's saying here, I've got a better plan. With that first covenant, God stayed faithful to his people, but they cheated on him. So God says, I'm creating a new covenant. A covenant that not even you can break. A covenant that not even your sin can break. It's the ultimate solution for serial sinners. In God's new plan, verse 33, he says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. In the old way, remember, it was chiseled onto stone. And now now God says, I'm going to actually write it on the flesh of your heart. What does this mean? It means what I'm encapsulating in phrase number two. I give you the inner power to do what's right. God says in the new plan, I'm giving you an inner power to do what's right. That is radical. That is really new. With the first covenant, 
God's people could see what you're supposed to be, and by the way, this applies to any system of religion in which law is central. You can see kind of what you're supposed to be, but you can't quite figure out how to change really to get there. You know, sometimes I look at somebody who's like super bold and courageous and speaking up about something, and, I, and then I get to that situation, and I can see that I'm supposed to do that, but some, sometimes I get there and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I chicken out. Well, and so it's like what I need is a new inner power to do what's right. And God says, in the new covenant, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to put my law in your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. This is what you're going to want to do. Not like with an exterior knowledge of it, but like with an inner desire. This is from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is radical. Imagine, let me give you this analogy. God is our father, and we are a teenage driver. So we know the rules of the road, but within weeks of really first driving on our own, we wreck the car, wreck God's car. So God says, okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a brand new one, only I'm going to give you a different one. This one comes with driver assist. So when you pull up too fast behind that car in front of you, and it will break, even if you don't. Okay. That's the way it works in this new covenant, which comes with Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul explain how this works. The sinful nature still wants to do evil. That's still the case. That hasn't changed. But the Spirit now gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. This is quoting right right out of Galatians. And what the Holy Spirit produces in us in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those weren't in there before. And now they are. It's like a car with driver assist. Now, I, I don't, have you ever had this experience? You have someone in your life who is utterly frustrating to you. You just want to go, ah! like that. Okay. And you are praying about it. Lord, I need your grace to to do this relationship because this person is hard for me. And you find, maybe not perfectly, but you find I actually have a grace to be with them that I didn't used to have. I have a little more resilience to forgive them. I have a little more grace to deal with them. I have, uh, like I'm seeing them in a little different way than I did. Where's that coming from? It's coming from this new covenant where God puts his Holy Spirit inside you and he gives you a desire to do the right thing. It's like a new power. Or maybe you felt tempted and you were in the tractor beam and you were just being pulled in and it was only a matter of time till you fell and the Holy Spirit helped catch you. And you kind of like jolted away because like, whoa, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And, and, and you came to your senses and normally you would have fallen, but the Spirit gave you an implantation of the gift of self-control. This is a miracle, friends. This is what the old covenant, as beautiful as it was, and I'm not here to demean it, could not do. A.W. Tozer put it so well, the crowning achievement of New Testament revelation is the implantation within a believer of a force that impels him or her to act righteously. To us, we who are born prone to fail, God says, I'm going to give you an inner power to desire what's right and to do it. Now, 
we have to learn how to live in that, right? And lean into that Spirit's voice, but it's there. So phrase number one, your failure is not final. And phrase number two, I give you the inner power to do what's right. Which brings us to our third and final phrase, which I really love. I forgive and forget. I forgive and I forget. You know, we all need that because sometimes, even with driver assist, we override it and crash the car. So the Lord promises, quote, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I, I was trying to imagine this. So like God's got perfect memory, but he's going, oh, sorry, sorry. I just can't recall that sin that you did. I know you're kind of brooding on it, but I'm, I got, I'm blank. And you go, well, how is that possible? And the answer is he chooses not to remember. He doesn't want to remember it. He's, he's making a commitment to not to do that. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That sin that sometimes comes back to you and you go, oh, God doesn't remember it. Did you know that? That's blank. Whoop. Blank. He promises. Now, in the Old Covenant, God's people brought sacrifices, as you probably know, for their forgiveness. But according to the writer of Hebrews, that wasn't that effective. It didn't work. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It was actually more of a reminder of their sins than actually a way to really deal with them. But the new covenant, God says, I've got a way that even you guys can't mess up. Because <laughs> not only am I giving you an inner power to do what's right, but it, when you don't, you don't have to bring a sacrifice because I already did it. I brought it. And it's perfect. Hours before Jesus is arrested and then tortured and killed, here's what he does. He knows Jeremiah really well. And he picks up a cup of wine and quoting this phrase from Jeremiah right here, the new covenant, which is only there in the entire Old Testament. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying he did this for, your, for the forgiveness of your sins. So God offers up this perfect sacrifice our sins for our sins himself. And the Bible says this, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me say that one more time because I, I want to make sure you get this. By one sacrifice, Jesus... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, do you know that by the suffering of Jesus, he has made you perfect forever? That's not just like rhetoric. You have a complete and utter sanctification in God. Now, there's also that parallel phrase that goes along, companion phrase that goes along with it, who are being made holy. That's your process. But in terms of how God looks at you, he looks at you in Christ. And he says, I forgive your wickedness. I don't remember your sins. Uh, you know, a friend of mine was applying for a job uh, with a Christian not-for-profit organization. And uh, the first couple rounds of interviews went well, and it seemed to everybody involved that it was just, uh, you know, 
perfunctory matter to finish it up and, and hire him uh, until they ran his background check. And it lit up like a Christmas tree. And so the, uh, the CEO and the HR director called him in and said, um, yeah, so we got back your uh, background check. And um, anything you want to tell us? And they showed it to him. And right there, it all was. Everything that he'd been afraid would come out, it was all there. The possession of drug paraphernalia charges, the DUIs, the speeding, the whatever, a long list. So my friend said, you know, that is true. That's who I was. But I've gone through AA, and that's not who I am. There was a long pause, and the CEO said, we start at 8 in the morning. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God does with you. You see this long record. You know it's all there, and God looks at you and goes, we start first thing in the morning. I want you on my team. I called this sermon, What to Do When You've Blown It, and I realized I should have called it What God Does When We've Blown It. Listen, it's all at God's initiative. Uh, these are just direct quotes from these passages in Jeremiah. I will bring my people back from captivity. I will gather them and will watch over them. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy them with abundance. I'll make a new covenant. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Oh, my friend, whatever you've done, however you feel about yourself, I want to assure you, your failure is not final. I don't know if you've heard of a, a, a saint from the 1800s, Francois Lieberman, but he's got this great, great phrase. He says, always forget the past and never worry about your falls, many as they may be. And here's his reasoning. So long as you get back on your feet, no harm will have been done. Whereas a great deal of harm will occur if you lose heart or if you berate yourself too much for your failures. I love that. Are you locked up in shame? Is it like coded on you? Uh, like it does not have to be. That is not God's will and desire for you. I want you to just get up tonight, walk out of whatever that kind of prison cell of shame is for you and enter the freedom of God. Uh, the New York Times had a great story about a, a 51-year-old ex-con named Robert Saltzman. And like so many ex-cons, he had a horrific childhood. And uh, so he had spent most of his adult life in prison. And when he was released, he happened to be riding the New York City subway, and in his subway car, crazily enough, was a film director, a guy named Rashad Ernesto Green. And Rashad Green was actually, at that time, looking for somebody to play a role as a tough-looking ex-con in his forthcoming movie. And he got talking to Saltzman, and he said, you know, <laughs> you look really perfect for the part in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, why don't you come to the audition? So Saltzman did, and to everybody's surprise at the audition, um, Green cast him in the role. So they started filming. They were filming on location in a Long Island penitentiary. And Saltzman was exhausted from filming all day long. And so he fell asleep on a cot inside the cell. 
where he'd been filming. And when he woke up, he was groggy from his nap, and he, he got confused, and he was like, oh, no, I'm back in jail. And he starts weeping with despair. How did I get back here? What did I do? And then it dawns on him. No, 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 no. Nope. I'm free. I can walk out of here anytime I want to. And so can we.